Good morning, everyone. It's great to see so many people out, uh, despite the the cold weather that we've been talking about and the the challenges that sometimes presents. But thank you for being here. Thank you for gathering to worship, to to lend your voices. It's one of the beautiful things about sitting at the front is being able to hear everybody behind you singing as well. Uh, I just wanted to say I really appreciated our, our music team this morning uh, songs that sing the, the scriptures. Uh, we, are, we want to center on God's word, his revelation in the scriptures, and what he tells us about who he is and who we're to be in light of that. So to be reminded of that through, through song and scripture reading, and, and now hopefully we can dig into our sermon text for the day. We're continuing our series uh, on the book of Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches. And uh, today we're looking at Thyatira. Now, here's a question. Uh, Any of you out there, maybe some students more so, but any of you that are Star Wars fans that are are brave enough to admit that? Pastor Andrew, I see a few other hands there. Yeah, so so the new new Star Wars uh, movies, they've kind of generated a lot of controversy. In, in recent years. Now, I think a lot of people were hoping that a new Star Wars trilogy would kind of reboot the franchise and get that bad taste out of everyone's mouth that was left over from the prequel trilogy. But now I think people are rethinking their wish for new Star Wars. A, a big part of the difficulty is that so many people love and remember the Star Wars of their youth back in the 70s and 80s. And so then you get something new and, well, if it's too much like the old, then people go, oh, well, this is just the same thing all over again. This is boring. But then if they change things too much, people go, this isn't the Star Wars I know and love. All right, so then The Last Jedi seems to have suffered from the, the latter uh, problem. It's not the Star Wars I know and love. And The Force Awakens seems to suffer from the former. This is just basically a rehash of where we've already been. It's just a new hope all over again, right? Orphan teenager living on a desert planet, has a robot friend with a secret message inside and, and discovers they have superpowers uh, but while being pursued by an evil guy in a black suit and they get on a spaceship and fly around and join a rebellion to fight a, a giant planet-destroying weapon. Something like that. They frequently, they basically reshoot the same scenes over again in The Force Awakens. And there's videos on YouTube if you want to see this. On the one hand, this can feel like just, this is a total money grab. They just knew this worked in the past. We're going to do it all over again. On the other hand, there's something about these kind of central stories. The, the poor kid from nowhere who finds out there's someone important. Or, or the search for identity, wondering who am I, and, and this idea of the, the good that's small and, and rebelling and this little thing against this huge evil superpower. Those are some deep stories that resonate with us. That's why some of these films keep telling these kind of stories. There are things that are like that, that we just, we keep coming back to. Life is like that. Church life is like that. The scriptures are kind of like that too. There are certain themes that we keep returning to again and again. And so if you have the feeling that today's passage 
Maybe you've heard it somewhere before. Well, you heard it last week because the church in Thyatira is very, very similar to the church in Pergamum. They have many similar issues going on. Jesus has similar words of commendation and similar words of critique. So we're going to read uh, last week's passage and, and this week's passage so you can sort of see the similarities between them. I would, in, I would invite you to stand, as we typically do, for hearing from our sermon passage for the day. So I'll read, first of all, the letter to the church in Pergamum, and then we'll look at today's text to Thyatira. Revelation 2, beginning at verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, and I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching... To you who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my words until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. You can have a seat. Now, I'm sure you caught a lot of uh, similarities between the two. These passages have uh, some remarkably similar things going on. So we have most of the church seems to be doing pretty well. Jesus begins with hearty commendation of, of what they've been accomplishing. They're holding fast. They're doing well. But there is false teaching, and Jesus condemns that very strongly. In both cases, the false teaching seems to involve sexual immorality, perhaps metaphorical, perhaps literal, maybe both, and seems to involve idolatry. 
The false teaching in both is likened to a story from the Old Testament. The person uh, that seems to be at the forefront of this false teaching uh, is compared to a figure from the Old Testament who is, who is a bad character. And in both, there's a separation made between those who are participating in this and those who are not participating in this. And the judgment is threatened towards those that are participating. And the need to hold fast to Jesus is mentioned in both. The main difference is that it seems that in the letter to the church in Thyatira, things get turned up a notch. The false teaching is presented in more kind of graphic, strong language, and there is more of a divide made between those who are participating and those who refuse to participate. Um, There's a specific false teacher that's denounced, and more time is spent unfolding the judgment that is coming. Like I said, it gets turned up a notch or two. So let's talk a bit about Thyatira, a little bit of the historical background there. Ephesus was one of the biggest and most uh, economically powerful of the cities. Pergamum was the political capital. Uh, Thyatira seems to have been a more blue-collar working town. If we have a map, uh, we can get that map up there, we might be able to see it. I know the printing is small, but Ephesus, and then you go up, 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 Smyrna, Pergamum, and then Thyatira, you start down again. They're all kind of right there in a, in a small area. If we were to compare these cities to modern ones in our own country, so we might say Ephesus is kind of the big, powerful city, the biggest one. Maybe that's like Toronto. Uh, Pergamum's kind of the political capital. That might be Ottawa. Thyatira is sort of the, the, the trades. It might be Fort Mac, maybe. So, something like that. This is more of a blue-collar working town. The only other mention of this city in Scripture is Acts 16. We hear about Lydia, who became a follower of Jesus. And she was originally from Thyatira, and she was a merchant in purple cloth. This is the sort of thing that Thyatira was particularly known for, different skilled trades. And, and in Thyatira, what, what was really prominent was that each one of these trades had a trade guild that was kind of something that's a little bit difficult for us to wrap our heads around. It's, a, it's an ancient sort of an organization, kind of, well, they centered on different crafts and trades, uh, cloth dyeing, uh, weaving, metalsmithing, leather working, and so forth. And these, each trade would have their own guild. And they're kind of an ancient and medieval equivalent of a, of a trade union. They oversaw quality control and they offered mutual support and protection for members. But they were also kind of like a, a bit like the mafia or, or a secret society. They could monopolize certain aspects of trade. There were initiations to get in and, and consequences if you tried to leave. And this may be getting into a bit kind of controversial territory, but the Freemasons, this is the kind of thing we're talking about. The Freemasons was originally a trade guild for stonecutters, but over time it developed certain, you know, initiation rites and, and kind of took on this, this cast of being, being a secret society as well. And this is kind of how trade guilds worked in the ancient world. And this is where things start to get tricky if you're a Christian tradesman or tradeswoman in Thyatira. There's nothing wrong with belonging to a group that oversees quality control and helps you to market your goods and your services. Nothing wrong with that at all. It can be a, a mutually encouraging thing that fosters good practices, creativity, and so forth. That's great. 
But the problem comes when there's rituals and those kinds of things that might not agree with your Christian faith. What if you have to take a blood oath to a a pagan god in order to get into the trade guild? What if maintaining your standing in the trade guilds means you have to participate in pagan rituals and pagan feasts where they worship their gods or goddesses? Because most of the trades had some kind of a patron god or goddess and, and you would have to make sacrifices to them and maintain your standing in that way. And if you didn't follow along with what the trade guild required, well, then you'd get blacklisted and it would get very hard to be able to sell your merchandise or your services. So you could see the trouble Christians were in in this context. Do you compromise? Well, I don't know. What do you do, right? You need to be part of this guild to maintain your standing in the community and stay in business. So maybe you compromise a little bit to get in. But then what about when they want you to go to the temple every month and offer the sacrifices that you need to offer? What if temple prostitution is part of it? Like where, where are you going to draw the line? And that's what Christians in this society were trying to figure out. Like where is the line? How, how far into this can you get? And I'm sure there was disagreement about some saying, well, it's not so bad. We know that idols really aren't anything anyhow. They're just hunks of metal or wood or rock. Other people would take a much more hardline stance. And this is where these Christians are as Jesus writes to them through the Apostle John. Similar to most of the letters, all of them in fact, Jesus begins by saying, I know. And that should be a comforting thought. Jesus sees all that these Christians are going through. That they're living in this, this culture, in this community where there's these trade guilds and these secret societies and all they're trying to pressure the Christians to do and they're trying to work it out. Jesus sees these things in the idol temples and he says, I know. I know what you're going through. And what he knows, what he sees, initially is pretty good. As, as far as how they're bearing up in the circumstances. Of all the churches, this one has quite a lengthy string of positives that Jesus has to say about it. So first of all, he says, I know your works. This might be its own category. I would tend to understand this is a heading under which all the following things would fall. I've said more than once in this series, works, works are not bad. Furthermore, if we learn anything from these letters, I think we have to learn that Jesus is really concerned about our works. He's really concerned about how we're living and what we're doing. They're not irrelevant to our standing before God. That might sound kind of suspect to those of us who are good Protestant evangelicals and we take our stand on saved by grace through faith alone. But throughout the Bible, we see a continual pattern. People's faith is only as good as how they continue to live that out. That's why Jesus put such a strong emphasis on how are you doing? How are you living? How are you obeying? We'd probably do better to move faith out of the category of theological buzzword. And one way might be to remind ourselves that faith is never separate from faithfulness. And for the most part, this church has been faithful to Jesus in the following ways. He says, I know your works. I know your love. Their love. It's possibly in contrast, if you remember, a few weeks back to the church in Ephesus. They had lots of works and they were doing lots of things, but Jesus says, you've abandoned your first love. This church hasn't. They've got 
lots going on. They're doing lots of good works and service. But first on the list is their love. We're not specifically told the object of the love. Is it God? Is it their brothers and sisters in Christ? The wider community? Probably not any point dividing too strongly on these alternatives. Love for God, of course, will always be the the primary and foundational kind of love out of which all others flow. Love for one another. Love for the wider community. But the flip side of that coin is that love for others is usually a pretty good indication and a reliable indicator of the genuineness of our professed love for God. And as I mentioned, this seems to be in a pretty strong contrast to the church back in Ephesus. They seem to have lots going on, but true love for God and one another had grown cold. This church has both. He says, I know your faith. And as I mentioned before, we've probably overdrawn the line between faith and works. This is especially true if we understand faith in a, in a robust biblical understanding that it means more than just agreeing with certain propositions. Biblical faith is always faith in action. Biblical faith means trusting God. Biblical faith is faithfulness to God. We've called this sermon series, Don't Stop Believing. But I hope we've been, we've been diligent in reminding ourselves and that Andrew and I and, and one another, we've all been diligent in reminding each other that don't stop believing doesn't mean just don't stop thinking true things. It means stay faithful to Jesus. It's not just about believing the right doctrines. It's also about putting those doctrines into practice. Your service, he says, I know. I think you can start to see these aren't all discrete items in a list like apples and oranges and bananas. Like, okay, I'll, I'll have some, some works and some faith, but I don't know that service, that seems a little hard. Or I'm really good on the love part, but I don't know about this service thing. These aren't discrete items like apples and bananas and oranges. They're more like flour and sugar and eggs that you put all together and bake into a cake. You need all of these things and you mix them together and they, they do their thing. Once they're actively effective or baked, if you will, you can't separate them anymore. They're all working together to do the thing. So serving God, serving others, serving God by serving others. Yes, all of the above. You get the impression that this is a church that really, really practices what they preach in a committed and God-honoring manner. They aren't cold, detached rationalists just believing all the right things. And they aren't kind of warm, fuzzy, social gospel types that don't really care what they believe. They're, they're Jesus-loving, neighbor-serving, faith-in-action kind of church people. And Jesus commends them for it. He says, I know your steadfast endurance. It's the church that keeps on doing what they know they need to be doing, even when there's opposition. They keep on staying faithful. They keep on serving, even if they don't feel like it, even when people criticize them or even persecute them for it, even if they get no credit, even when they're opposed. They don't fold under the first bit of pressure that comes their way. In so many ways, this is a model church. And finally, he says, I know that your latter works exceed the first. When we looked at the church in Ephesus, we spent some time considering whether first refers primarily to 
chronology as in, in first in a sequence or if it refers more to the sense of, of priority, you know, first in, in terms of how important things are. Uh, we concluded that first in a sequence was probably true, but more important was that works be the first works in terms of priority. Similar language is used here, and chronology also seems to be in view. But again, it's not just a situation of that was then and that was better, or this is now and that was better. It has more to do with the level of obedience and devotion and love for Christ. So in the case of the Ephesian church, they used to be doing good. They used to be doing all these important things, but that had begun to wane over time. And their love had grown cold. The church in Thyatira, on the other hand, they used to be doing not as well as they're doing now. And as time went on, they were more faithful in doing the works that God called them to do. They were growing stronger in their love for God and their devotion to him and their service to others. It's a model church in so many ways. But... Even though Jesus had all this good to say about them, he still had some serious issues that he needed to bring up. Again, as with last week, what we see is there's compromise, even as many people in the church are standing firm. And, as with last week, the compromise gets likened, as so much in Revelation does, to a story from the Old Testament. We heard our earlier scripture reading from 1 Kings where where Jezebel is first introduced. And the evaluation there, in case you didn't catch it, is not good. If you remember back to the story of Israel, we'll just kind of recap briefly. So, originally there was one nation of Israel in what they call the United Monarchy. And that lasted up until King Solomon. And then after him, the kingdom was divided. And after Solomon, Israel referred to the northern kingdom uh, and Judah came to refer to the southern kingdom. Both kingdoms kind of went into a steady state of decline from that point on. But Israel in the north was worse than Judah in the south. Israel never really had any good kings after the united monarchy None of their kings were evaluated entirely positively. Whereas the nation of Judah, at least once in a while, they'd have a good king like Josiah or Hezekiah who would come along and turn the nation back to the Lord at least during his lifetime and that would forestall God's judgment for, for some time more. And so it's in, it's in the northern kingdom, the worst one, that the story of Ahab and Jezebel unfolds. And the text is pretty clear. Their reign, and it seems really that Jezebel was the one driving the bus all the time when you, when you read the stories of what was going on. Ahab was just kind of along for the ride and she was the one really running things. Their reign was bad. This was, in the text we read earlier, like this was a new low. This was the absolute low point in the history of the nation. Initially, the northern kingdom at least kept up a pretense of worshiping the Lord. They, they were worshiping idols, of course, but they would say, well, we're worshiping the Lord by these, these idols. Ahab and Jezebel come along, they're like, enough of that, we're just going to worship Baal. We're pretty much there anyhow, let's just do it. So they build, you re, we heard it read earlier, they build actually a temple to Baal and they put up altars to Baal and they just make sacrifices to him. 
He went so far as to actually build a temple. He converted the the nation away from any last pretense or any last shred of following the Lord and just converted them to the worship of the pagan gods. And even then took it a step further and started eradicating the people that were still faithful and wanted to worship the Lord. And this eventually comes to kind of a head in the, uh, the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal on top of Mount Carmel. Pagan gods were frequently worshipped on mountaintops. And so they have this, this big challenge Elijah, the, the lone prophet of the Lord, and all these prophets that Jezebel's brought in, hundreds of them, and they're going to have a sacrifice contest. And Elijah lets the others go first. And so they prepare the, the sacrifice, and they put it on the altar, and the contest is whichever God can light the sacrifice on fire is the true God. And so you know the story, right? The prophets of Baal, they dance around and they call on Baal and they do all kinds of stuff to try to get his attention. Nothing happens. They spend all day at this. No, no fire, nothing. And then Elijah's like, okay, it's my turn. He, he even, he really tries to make this dramatic. If you remember the story, Elijah goes and he gets water. And this is a drought, right? So this is really dramatic. He gets water and he pours water on the sacrifice, even in a trench around it. He drenches the sacrifice with water just so there's no trickery involved. And he calls on the Lord and it's like three lines and fire falls from heaven, burns the sacrifice up, burns the the altar and the wood and everything is just gone just vaporized and so everyone's like yeah the lord is god but jezebel doesn't like this and so that's pretty short-lived because she tries to hunt elijah down and kill him and he has to flee into the wilderness and then there's this episode with ahab and jezebel where they kill this man called naboth because they want to expropriate his land into the royal estates and take it for their own And Elijah shows up at the end of that story after they've had Naboth murdered and he prophesies harsh words of judgment against the house of Ahab and specifically against Jezebel that they are going to come to a violent end and uh, it, it involves dogs eating their dead bodies. It gets very graphic and gruesome but that's what happens at the end and it eventually comes it's considerably later in second kings 9 this guy called jehu stages a royal coup and pretty much executes the whole house of ahab and it's a seriously game of thrones kind of thing going on there it's really gruesome and jezebel's kind of the climax of the bloodletting where they have her thrown out of a window and she dies and the dogs in the street eat her body it's gruesome stuff And that's the background to the story, uh, that's the background story to what's going on and the words of judgment that Jesus is bringing against what's going on in his church. Whoever this woman at Thyatira was, and her name probably was not Jezebel, This this is Jesus through the Apostle John drawing this story out. Whoever she was, she was bringing pagan ideas and practices into the church, just like Queen Jezebel in the Old Testament was bringing pagan ideas and practices into the nation of Israel. And notice how the progression went. We have this progression from worshiping the Lord to 
paying lip service to worshiping the Lord, but kind of doing it by pagan means, to doing away with that pretense and just worshiping the pagan gods, to worshiping the pagan gods to the extent that we will persecute those who are actually still following the Lord. It seems that the church in Thyatira had at least made it past actually worshiping the Lord into worshiping the Lord with some paganism thrown in and that maybe some people were even in danger of taking another step and just forsaking the worship of the Lord entirely and just going with paganism. There's this certain kind of sexually charged language in this passage. We don't know for sure if the seduction and the adultery mentioned was, was literal or if it's a metaphor for unfaithfulness to the Lord. It's probably both given that the pagan sorts of worship so frequently involved ritualized sex acts and temple prostitution and unfaithfulness to the Lord is so frequently mentioned using this kind of language because it involves breaking a sacred covenant just like adultery is breaking the sacred covenant of marriage. That's why adultery is so often an image for pagan worship, for idolatry in scripture. In any case, it may be that this had something to do with the pagan rituals, the pagan temple rites, the mystery religions, which were so often wrapped up in the whole thing with the trade guilds. And maybe we think, those foolish and superstitious ancient people, how didn't they know that idols were just stupid statues made out of wood or stone or metal, not actual deities? Why would they even do that? Maybe so, but... We do have to wonder how much better we are. What is an idol? Well, an idol is a thing that you worship. What's worship? Well, it's multifaceted, of course, but one of the most important aspects of worship is sacrifice. What people are willing to sacrifice, that is, deny themselves for, is generally a pretty good idea of what they're worshiping. You see how this works, right? A sacrifice is when you take something that's valuable to you and you deny yourself of it or you consciously give it away because you believe that there's something better to be had. It's a pretty good idea to what you're worshiping. What are you willing to neglect or forsake or deny yourself of in order to get this thing? We'll come back to that at the end. In the Old Testament story, Jezebel and Ahab and again so much of what goes on in Revelation depends on an awareness of whether we get the Old Testament illusions. We have this prophecy of judgment that came true as foretold. The prophet Elijah said okay time's up bad stuff's coming we're wiping you out the Lord's done with you. The apostle John does the very same thing in this passage with this woman that's called Jezebel. It's an interesting thing going on here with repentance. Jezebel, Jesus says, at this church in Thyatira, she's been given time and space to repent, but she would not do so. And the time and space to repent has now run out. Sometimes, you know, we, we are our larger culture, I suppose, we so frequently ask, well, how can a good and loving God punish people? I sometimes wonder whether we maybe need to ask, how can a good and loving God not punish people, given some of what's going on in this wicked world? And here's the the scary thing, I think. In theory, no one is ever beyond the hope 
and grace of God. His mercy extends to all. But there comes a point when sin has so had its way with somebody that they become so hardened that they're unable to respond to the grace of God. I think this is what the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1 when he says that God gave people over to their sin. It seems that this woman Jezebel, whoever she was, had reached that point. Right? She was past the point of no return. Her punishment would fit the crime. Her bed of adultery, probably in a literal and metaphorical sense, would become a bed of debilitating sickness. Again, maybe literal, maybe metaphorical or symbolic, but the judgment fit the crime. But her followers have not, according to this passage, yet reached the point of no hope and no return. Judgment is certain, Jesus says, for Jezebel. She's done. But her followers, Jesus says, still have some time left. They still have time to leave this sin and turn from this wickedness and repent. He threatens severe judgment. But then at the end, unless they repent, there's there's that hope held out. And let's be clear, the forestalling of judgment on Jesus' part is not because he doesn't care or because he's turning a blind eye. It is because he is merciful and he, he is allowing as much time as absolutely possible. It's not an excuse to go on sinning a bit longer. It is a last chance to get some things right. Interestingly enough, in this passage, there's, there's a more pronounced us-them divide than in the church last week at Pergamum. In that congregation, there there was a sense that even though the false teaching was being perpetrated by a specific group, there was kind of a sense that the whole congregation needed to repent, at least in, in some measure, for allowing that to happen. Here, Jesus... He just says that those who haven't participated in any of this, that he's making a clear divide between them and this other group that's been participating in this false teaching. The group that hasn't participated, he says, all you're responsible for is to keep holding on. Hold fast until I come. And that was a phrase that we looked at quite a bit last week. Hold on, hold fast to your faith, hold fast to the name of Jesus until he comes. Last week we ended with a warning or two in for our own context. And it's worth repeating again. We sometimes get the idea that, that false teaching is primarily religious in nature, doctrinal, if you will, and that false teaching is primarily taught publicly and officially. For example, in a church service or a classroom. But neither of these are necessarily true. In the case of the people in Thyatira, The false teaching may not have been presented as anything having to do with their Christian lives at all. It was probably being presented in a business context of, you know, you have your your Christianity and your church and worshiping Jesus on Sunday, but here's some things that might be good for you in your life the rest of the week to maintain your good standing as a business person centered around these trade guilds that we've been looking at. And we can fall into the same trap. We can express very theologically and doctrinally correct views in our religious lives on a Sunday morning and still be very seduced by worldly and self-centered teachings and ideas in in our secular lives the rest of the week, the other six days. Most of us would do well to continue to evaluate the teachings 
that we let into our lives. These are often never packaged as teachings at all. These are just attitudes, ways of speaking and thinking in the world that we can adopt in our media-saturated age if we're not careful. And remember what I said earlier about sacrifices. An idol is something to which you're willing to sacrifice, to give away some of what is most valuable to you. So the question we all need to answer is, what's getting the best of our time and of our treasure? It's a challenging question to ask, but answering that honestly can go a long way to getting our lives into better order. That's not where I want to park as we conclude. I gave some practical possibilities of of areas last week uh, where you might start to make some changes in your lives here and now. And if you want to listen to last week's recording again, it's there for you. But for the time that remains to us, I don't just want to park on the warning thing again. I'd really like to focus on Jesus as we end. We've been singing about that this morning. We've been praying toward that end. I'd really like us to focus on Jesus. At the beginning of this letter, as was the usual pattern, Jesus is described using some of the items from the vision in Revelation chapter 1. In this case, he's described as having eyes like flaming fire and feet like molten bronze. And I don't think we have to work very hard to understand that the, the eyes like flaming fire has to do with Jesus seeing everything and that he sees with an eye toward judgment. That should be both a sobering thought, but also it should be a comfort to us. We see that in this letter. Jesus sees those who are giving it all they've got for him and for their faith in him in spite of persecution. He sees also those who are compromising in shameful and possibly secret ways. Judgment can be kind of a a dirty word in our culture, but it doesn't have to be. Judgment just means evaluating things correctly according to the proper standard. This is essentially what verse 23 makes very clear. Jesus is the one who searches, who sees the minds and hearts of his people. And he will give to everybody according to what is fitting. He also says that the end, that he has promises for those who conquer. One of these promises that he will give them authority over the nations. This would have been an amazing promise to a persecuted church. Who was, they were in the reverse situation. They were living, the nations had authority over them. They were living in a culture that said, burn some incense to the emperor and tell us that you believe Caesar is Lord and all will be well with you. They were living in a culture that said, you want to do well in business? Practice the secret, sacred initiation rites and get into a trade guild and pay homage to a pagan god or else. And this, this part here is yet another Old Testament allusion to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 describes the reign of God's anointed one who has and will ultimately have ultimate authority even though now the nations are raging and plotting. And it concludes with a promise to the Lord's anointed. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You see what's happening here? 
The end makes this clear in case we've missed it. Even even as Jesus has received authority from God the Father, this promise is made to him that he will inherit the nations. He will execute judgment on them. That's given to Jesus. But because we're God's children, what is true of Jesus then is also given to us. We will rule and reign with him. That's an amazing promise. This whole following Jesus thing is so much more than just, it's so much more than what we dare to believe most of the time. It's not just some rules or principles to follow. We need those, but you want rules and principles. There's other religions that have way stricter ones, way more serious about following their rules and their principles. Other religions have those too. You know, Christianity isn't that. Neither is following Jesus a way to ensure that you'll have a successful life. These Christians that we've been reading about in almost every passage in this series, they were not having a successful and easy life. They were being persecuted. Their businesses were doing badly because they wouldn't participate in these trade guilds. In the last text we read last week, somebody had lost their life for the sake of the gospel. These Christians, and many throughout history, did not have any such thing as an easy life. They were experiencing hardship because of their commitment to Christ. So that's not what following Jesus is all about either. What following Jesus is about is getting in on this kingdom of his now, in this life, in this age, so that we can be part of it fully when it fully comes. So the question that we need to ask ourselves as we finish this, as we look at this church and as we see how it applies to our situation is, do we want to be part of that kingdom? Do we want to be part of God's kingdom? Do we want to be part of it and conquer and rule and reign with Christ in eternity in the kingdom that he's bringing? He's holding out the choice to us. Every letter ends the same way. He who has an ear Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I believe what he's saying in this passage is, do you want to conquer and reign with Christ? Or do you want to be conquered by the world? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these words that we've again looked at today with, with both comfort and encouragement, but also warning. Thank you for the way that your word speaks to us in so many different ways, in, in, in multi-layered and faceted ways where you, where you take things that you've said in the past in the Old Testament scriptures and you, you reiterate those and reuse them and, and they continue to become new and fresh as we look at the revelation that is in Jesus. The way your word is unified and, and speaks and continues to speak to us today. May these words provide us comfort for the things that we are, we are doing well in obeying and serving and loving one another. That we should keep doing those things. That those things are pleasing to you. That those are the sorts of things to which you'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. But let us also take seriously the warnings as to those areas where we may be compromising. Not just in, 
in official teaching, in, in religious or doctrinal teaching, though that's bad and we want to avoid that. We also want to avoid compromising in other areas of our lives that we might be tempted to call secular or, or workplace or workday areas of our lives. May we see that all areas of our lives are open and visible to you and all areas of our lives are areas where we're called to live in a way that is obedient and pleasing to you. And as we conclude our time together, uh, may you go with us into this week ahead. Give us strength and wisdom to contemplate those areas of our lives that we need to reevaluate, where we maybe need to change. And above all, Lord, we pray that you would give us assurance that you are our king, that you are ruling now, and that you will rule ultimately in your eternal kingdom. And we long for that and long to participate with you in it. In your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with us and respond in singing? Mm -hmm.